Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Peter Rogan, who is Professor of Biochemistry and Biostatistics at Western University and Professor of Oncology at the University of Western Ontario. His lab focuses on bioinformatic technologies at population scale to address important biomedical challenges in genomics and other areas. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. I want to start with uh, your recent work in geostatistical analysis um, in the context of COVID uh, positive cases in the United States, uh, in which you say geostatistics analyzes and predicts the values associated with spatial temporal phenomena, and it's a practical means of describing spatial patterns and interpolating values for locations where samples were not taken and measures uncertainty of those values, which is critical to inform decision-making. You want to talk a bit about that work? Sure. So just to put some uh, perspective on this, geostatistics has been around for at least 50 years. And, um, and it really has been pioneered and championed by the natural resources extraction industry, industries. So um, for those of you who aren't aware, if you wanna find a deposit, whether it's oil or mineral, um, usually they do soundings with yeah. uh, ground radar and, and the reflection of that sounding reflects what's down underneath the ground. And basically they map these reflections um, they sample different locations and, and from those samplings, they can build a map and basically determine where to dig or drill as the case may be. Yeah. And, and so you can think of this from an operational point of view as, you know, substantially reducing the amount of effort involved in finding the, the deposit that you're interested in. So um, the way it works is that that you have several measurements and the expectation is that the measurements when they're closely spaced together um, yeah. will be correlated with one another as far as as you move further away from 
the deposit, then the sounding will change and you expect to see a different measurement. So the idea then is that if you have these measurements, you can sort of uh, infer what's between them. That's called interpolation, span spa spatial interpolation. Now, also, you can do this by uh, looking at, for example, ecosystems. And so you can, for example, look at pollution and water over time. So there's a not only a spatial component, but there's a time element to this. Right. So you can see how the system changes when you're measuring something and interpolating what's happening between the points that you measure. Okay, so with that as kind of the background, Imagine that you have counts of patients with uh, COVID-19 in every state in the United States. And in fact, the famous Johns Hopkins web server, um, Coronavirus Resource, yeah. um, publishes as of the 25th of March of this year, counts in every county of every state in the United States. Right. So if we apply the same principles of geostatistics, then we expect that where there are hotspots, those counts will be increasing and that won't be occurring in areas where the, the virus is either under control or it's not being transmitted because people aren't going there or congregating there. So you expect to see a lack of correlation, spatial correlation. So we have different geostatistical tests that we can do to actually find those hotspots. Right. Yeah. So, Go so, ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so I can understand that, Peter. So at the beginning of this issue, uh, there were only few cases. So if I understand this correctly, Peter, let's say take a state like Texas, um, you would take a few measurements uh, and uh, from those measurements, both in space and time, you can have some expectations of how that could change. And using that information, you could actually potentially predict how the spread is going to be, something along those lines. Well, right? it's, it's possible, but we're not doing any prediction. Okay. Right? We're currently just, first of all, we're not just taking a few spaces. Yeah. We download the entire uh, data set for the entire United States okay. when we do the analysis. And, and we're essentially, we analyze it different ways. So for example, you can look at distances. So you can say, I wanna consider each county and then compare it with every other county that's within 50 miles of that county, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, now you have these pairwise comparisons and you're essentially looking for whether the counts in one county are high, are different from the other ones around it. Right. All right, okay. and that, is a statistically significant result. Now, let's say I do that analysis and I do it over a period of a week. Yeah. Uh, and I see the same result. Well, what that tells me is that, that, that the virus is not under control and it's also not noise, right? So we're seeing a signal, we're seeing that signal consistently over the course of a whole week. And it, we're not looking at a noisy result, something that's just a fluke that might happen on a particular day because the counts happen to be higher, because the testing laboratory happened to be more efficient that day or any of the other possible, you know, there could be errors in the Johns Hopkins data, which we've come across. And there's all kinds of reasons why on a given day you might see a signal that you might not see the next day. So by doing the space-time analysis, 
we get a more reliable, more consistent result. Yeah. So what exactly is the output? So is it some sort it's of a map. infection? So, yeah. I'm yeah. happy to show it to you, but it's not so easy. To, I, I think I've given you the... Yeah. So I, could you could I, you describe that? So you know, from a, <laughs> sure. from a policy... I'll do my best. At, so at there are two a, types of geostatistical analyses. One is called area-to-area -area analysis. So that's like comparing the centers of you know, different counties with one another, but rep recognizing that the number that we measure represents all the patients in that county, all the individuals who are affected in that county. Mm -hmm. So we're comparing counties with one another. And then there's this other technique, which most people have probably never heard of, but that's really the basis for the uh, natural resource extraction tech methods, and that's called Krieging. And there we are actually... Um, for example, we know exactly where the individuals who were um, uh, affected are. Now, of course, that information isn't reported um, publicly, but it is available to some people. And, and so you can, you can actually you know, use uh, what's called linear regression, ways to infer and, and estimate the levels of, of COVID in like individual neighborhoods, for example, or maybe even on individual streets. Um, when you have the locations of the individuals within that county. So that's called point-to-point -point, uh, geostatistics. Um, so what we're, you know, with regard to uh, the area-to-area -area analysis, we're getting what's called a confidence measure. So uh, we, we can statistically generate what's known as a p-value, a probability that it, this is something that we might see at random right and 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 if the probability that it, it's it's a random distribution of cases is is uh high then we can't exclude that it's that it's a, a real hot spot but if that probability is non-random that is the likelihood of seeing you know counts in one county is so much higher than seeing the counts in the adjacent ones mm -hmm. uh then we get a we can exclude the so-called null hypothesis the hypothesis that this is a random distribution of individuals. And hence, you know, that means that, that, that the individuals you see that are clustered in that particular county came about um, by transmission of the disease from different people localized in the same area. Okay, so uh, from a decision-making perspective, from a policy perspective, what this will provide is you are still looking at data backward and essentially saying, if I look at, you know, area X, X or X1, uh, what I'm seeing in that area, it's not a statistical fluke. It appears to have some real sort of infection intensity or whatever term you want to use it. And so whoever is responsible for that county from a policy perspective could utilize that information. Is that, is that the utility? So there, so there are two really interesting results, one of which is incredibly practical. Yeah. Um, so when we started doing this, what has kind of kept me going on this was uh, we decided to explore the case of Louisiana first. Hmm. So everyone knows that in the first Tuesday of, of February in Louisiana, there is a very big party and it's called Mardi Gras. <laughs> And people yeah. come from all over the world to attend that party uh, on Bourbon Street in New Orleans. So um, when 
we realized when the government realized that, you know, COVID had arrived on the shores of the United States in January and uh, I guess sometimes in February, the first New England Journal article of a patient in Seattle was in late January, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Anyway, New England Journal of Medicine article. So um, it was expected that Mardi Gras would cause a hotspot. And of course, we know that the incubation time is somewhere in the vicinity of two weeks. Um, and, and so there was an expectation that after Mardi Gras, uh, there, at least some of the individuals who had migrated to New Orleans stayed there, or those, some of them were locals, and that we would expect to see a hotspot. So we thought that would be a good choice for our first test. And lo and behold, you know, uh, literally on the first day that Hopkins, Johns Hopkins started to report data, we saw a hotspot in New Orleans and in the, a couple of the surrounding counties, and they persisted for quite a while, actually. Hmm. But what surprised us was that we started, we also saw um, a smaller signal, one in uh, northwest Louisiana in Shreveport, um, as well as uh, in the Baton Rouge area, but that one was a bit more transient. The Shreveport signal came around uh, for us on the 25th, of uh, March, so fairly early, but then it kind of disappeared and then it reappeared. But the interesting thing was that, you know, we're in a position when we look retrospectively to see when the media as well as governments reported these hot, these, you know, case counts being um, increasing in on the internet and in the newspapers and so on. and. The first reported case for Shreveport, the first reported announcement occurred on April 1st. Hmm. So the point was that the geostatistics told us six days before the government announced it that they had a problem. Now, imagine you were a health department for the state of Louisiana and you knew you had six days of advance notice. Well, there's a lot of things you can do. You can start to isolate people. You can start to institute distance, you know, uh, constraints that prevent people from congregating, and you could potentially prevent the spread of the virus. Right. Yeah, I can see that, Peter. When at the beginning of a of a pandemic, but I'm wondering when you have a situation where you have seventy thousand new infections uh, okay. uh, per day, do, do you still get some utility from it? Well, that's a good no. So I wanted to talk about that too. So. Yeah. In our most recent release of the archive, um, we, we decided that we would explore the question of uh, what happened after, I mean, which we all know about, but I just thought we would see it on a spatial level. Yeah. Um, what, would hap- what happened after Memorial Day when uh, the president and others um, decided to relax the distance constraints and told everybody to go back to work and <laughs> and play and so on and 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 you can see in some locations, especially Texas, um, the spread of these hotspots um, literally two to four weeks after. Uh, one of my technologists said that, uh, and I don't remember the location, but there was after this this was noticed by the government authorities, they they actually instituted the mask. Um, uh, requirements in that particular location, and then those hotspots started to diminish in that particular location. 
So it's one way to measure effectiveness, but I decided to do one more thing with this, with these data. <laughs> Where we were looking, you know, in Southern California and Texas and Florida, we decided to go all the way back to the beginning yeah. of our analysis. And we actually saw some hotspots that were transient in each of those places, and then they disappeared. Mm. Um, when, when, you know, social distancing was mandated and everybody was in their homes for the months of March and part of April, I guess, and part of Mar May. And, 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 and then, of course, when you see the, um, the disease reappear after the relaxation of the constraints, the interesting thing was you don't see it reappearing elsewhere where there weren't early hotspots. Right. So what that tells us, and we haven't yet published this, but we're writing it up now, is that it looks like there's a hidden reservoir of virus. Mm. You know, we know that there are individuals who are infectious for months on end, right? Mm. And they have symptoms. We also know that something like 30 to 50%, depending on your age group, is asymptomatic. Right. And it's also um, known that those asymptomatic individuals produce as much virus as the symptomatic ones do. Yeah. So it's very reasonable to suspect that when uh, the lockdown occurred after the end of March, early April, that we had these carriers, if you want to call them that, who were asymptomatic walking around, and that all that was necessary was for the constraints to be released, then everybody went to the bars and the transmission occurred, and we see what we see today in California, Arizona, Texas, and you know Georgia and Florida, and not yeah. to mention elsewhere. So I, I think um, to me, there's really only two solutions to this. And I mean, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I have a long history of, um, of doing molecular diagnostics, including an infectious disease in my former company. Yeah. And um, there's really only two solutions. One is random testing everywhere, mm -hmm. right, which the government and the United States are not equipped to do. And the other is a home test. So basically the same way you'd have a pregnancy test, you'd have to have, maybe you might even need to buy a device, but basically people would need to have it in their homes and you would need to basically certify that you actually were COVID free before you could go to certain places. Yeah. But bottom line is we need to ramp up testing dramatically. If in fact there are hidden reservoirs of virus that are not apparent because they will always continue to, um, recur and resurrect, right? When we do relax these constraints. Yeah, so so that's very interesting, Peter. So, you know, would you say, uh, given that there is a high prevalence of infection that is asymptomatic, uh, what we might see is sort of, you know, different waves of this thing happening. So one could argue that you need some sort of a dynamic policy uh, that needs to kick in very quickly, you know, uh, something based on analysis like yours that that picks up that wave early on and and very quickly uh, adopt a, a, you know, a lockdown or a close to a lockdown policy that is local. But it, some, it sounds to me, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds to me that policy has to be dynamic and this might be <laughs> this might be going on for a while. Well, it's certainly likely to, to me that, first of all, it's not just that it's dynamic, but the asymptomatic individuals have to 
have a persistent infection. So I would suspect the people mm -hmm. who are being called super spreaders are not just asymptomatic and positive, but they're asymptomatic and they're carrying it for months. I see. Wow. And I can't imagine that every asymptomatic individual is, is testing positive for more than, you know, it's, it's a limited number of people. We need to identify who those are. Mm. And the challenge, of course, especially given the, the rattling about freedom and so on, you know, is to get somebody who doesn't have symptoms to be to be <laughs> mandatorily tested. Right, that right. would be very difficult in the United States. I think uh, you'd have to mandate that everybody gets tested, or you have to mandate that there's random testing. Yeah, um, there, there is, as you know, there is a um, uh, there is a thought that uh, if you increase testing, uh, you will you will pick up more uh, more infections, and hence reducing testing might be a good idea. Um, it's a terrible idea <laughs> because, you know, the problem is that, that the people who are infected at this point in time, we don't know which ones are going to progress to the inner, you know, intensive care unit and, and die. Now, I that was what my other paper about that I sent you. Yeah. And we can talk about that if you're yeah, interested. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's jump into um, I don't know which one you're referring to. I, uh, I was going to jump into uh, another piece of work that you you did very recently. Uh, and that is interpretation of mRNA splicing mutations in genetic disease, uh, review of the literature and guidelines for information theoretical. Well, I, I only provided that to yeah. you as background, right? So, yeah, could, so, we, could we talk a little bit about it? I, I find that very interesting, Peter. So, okay. but I mean, I, I think what the reason I, I sent it to you is yeah. that, that this uh, COVID hypothesis that we have for why some patients get very sick. Um, is it uses some of the technology in that splicing paper, right? So, right. so mRNA splicing, our mRNA is our expressed genes, right? So we have genes in our chromosomes and then we copy, make copies of those and they're expressed. And then we have the central dogma of, of molecular biology and those expressed genes get translated into proteins, which are, you know, the structural elements of many cells. Yeah. Um, so, um, the question is some of these mRNAs, right? They, they actually are, they're processed. So when one of the differences, uh, it's actually really not so much of a difference, but, but humans and, and eukaryotes, animals, plants, we have interrupted genes. Mm -hmm. So the parts of the genes that get turned into proteins are separated from each other. And they're separated by sequences in the RNA that are ultimately in the DNA. And those sequences have to be spliced out. Right. And that, that's, that happens for like something like 97% of all human genes. Mm -hmm. um, and some genes have many segments that have to be spliced out, like the dystrophin gene that causes muscular dystrophy when it's mutated has you know, it's the largest gene in our genomes and it has several hundred segments that need to be spliced out precisely. And hence, some of the mutations that cause muscular dystrophy, you know, are affected by that process going awry. Right. Well, the, the, the whole process of recognizing the sequence that has to be spliced out is carried out by proteins. Yeah. Right. And in particular, they're carried out by a, a unit in our in our cells called spliceosomes, mm -hmm. recognize both ends of the segment that gets removed and then brings together the segments that ultimately 
get translated by the ribosome into forming proteins, uh, the actual proteins themselves. Right. So, so this splicing process involves proteins which we call RNA binding proteins, mm. right? They're, they're very important proteins for maturing the RNA that's transcribed from genes into the mature processed mRNAs, messenger RNAs that get translated into proteins. So these RNA binding proteins, there are actually many thousands of them. Yeah. And um, the question is, how do you recognize sequences in different genes? They're different sequences, all of which encode these signals that say cut here, right? Splice yeah. and cut here. And so um, I've been working on the, in this area, I don't know, since the mid 1990s and um, we, uh, we use a technique known as Shannon information theory and Shannon, inf Shannon was a very famous man in the 20th century. Uh, he devised and wrote some key studies called the mathematical theory of communication when he was at Bell Laboratories. Mm -hmm. and, and it is the reason why we're able to communicate right now, right? Um, because we can compress data and we can encode data and we can encrypt data thanks to Shannon's mathematical theory of communication. Yeah. But the thing that's interesting about it is that, that Shannon information theory applies to any kind of information, not just electrons passing through integrated circuits, but also sequences, DNA sequences, RNA sequences, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Protein sequences. And um, so you can look for signals in DNA and RNA and proteins that are... Um, uh, and quantify those signals in the same units that we quantify uh, the information in our computers. So when we talk about, you know, uh, a mega, a megabyte or a gigabyte, uh, those are made up of bits, right? And a bit is a choice. So choice is it's either one or zero in a, you know, uh, in a transistor, it's one or zero. So in DNA, we have four different nucleotides. Yeah. So there's two different choices. Okay, so every position in DNA has two bits of information. Right. Yeah, I want to, I want to, you know, sort of, uh, so you can see that information spectrum, so to speak. And um, is that useful in making some sort of prediction? Yes, it is. Yeah. But more importantly, um, it's actually, the thing that's remarkable about information theory is it's actually related to thermodynamics. Mm -hmm. So we can actually directly relate the bits of information in a site that's recognized for splicing to the energy that's required to recognize that site. Yeah. Okay. And there's a formal proof and a theorem about this. And it's, so that is what brings it back to biochemistry, right? Mm -hmm. So we can have strong binding sites. We can have weak binding sites. When we have mutations that affect the splicing process, they weaken a binding site. Yeah. Often, right. They also can create brand new binding sites. Right. When there are mutations that in the wrong locations. So the splicing event doesn't actually occur where it's supposed to. Yeah. Okay. So um, the thing about these information theory models and software and algorithms is that they're very general, right? We can, uh, we can derive uh, a recognition sequence for any RNA binding protein. Mm -hmm. 
even for any transcription factor. We've done that too, okay? Right. That controls DNA, uh, that activates or represses a gene. So, so it simply takes a series of binding sites whose sequence we know for a particular um, uh, binding protein, and then we derive this mathematical model, which is an information weight matrix that allows us to distinguish the sequences that are recognized from all the other sequences in the genome or the transcriptome. Okay? Right. And so now we, so, can we yeah. come back to COVID? I'd like to actually bring it back to the COVID story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, so, so the, uh, the virus that causes COVID is made out of RNA. Right. And the paper that I sent you, uh, which was published about a week ago, we put forward this idea that COVID basically can kill lung cells. And, and the question is, how does it do that? Yes. Um, and it can kill lung cells very rapidly. Uh, we actually calculate about two days is what it would take for it to happen. Hmm. So if you infect the cell with a single virion, a single viral particle, and it starts to copy itself, replicate itself, hmm. because that is, it encodes its own replicase, its own polymerase to copy its own genome. Um, it can make enough copies in two days to cause the cell to blow up, to lice. We use the term apoptosis. Yeah. The way that this occurs, actually, is that the virus contains these same binding sites that are also found in our cells' genomes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So when we produce a brand new RNA in the nucleus of our cell um, by transcribing it, by before it gets turned into messenger RNA, there are RNA binding proteins that bind to it and protect it. Right. And, and by protecting it, it prevents that RNA from, from, from basically uh, forming a duplex, a double strand, a double helix with the remaining DNA strand in the chromosome. Mm -hmm. So if it forms that double helix, we get something called an R loop. So there's one strand that's not bound to anything and the other strand is bound to RNA. And something your readers, your viewers might not know, uh, listeners might not know, is that when you form a duplex between RNA and DNA, it's actually stronger than the duplex between DNA and DNA. Hmm. Okay. So it's a big problem because if we have these things form, then what happens when the chromosome uh, replicates, the normal chromosome replicates, is it hits these loops, these R loops, and it causes chromosome breaks because it can't progress. We can't copy the chromosome. Right. And these R loops basically then are damaging and they, we activate you know, DNA repair processes, like when we're exposed to ultraviolet light or radiation or, or anything else, carcinogens. The problem is that the virus is continuing to copy itself and produce binding sites for these RNA binding proteins which can no longer find their way to the nucleus and protect the normal host RNAs. Now, why is this different, Peter, from, you know, the typical RNA virus infection? It isn't different. different. It isn't different. Fact, the same thing is happening. Actually, in, in our paper, we talk about, I found some evidence, published evidence, yeah. um, on influenza and dengue, yeah. uh, which are both 
replicate in the nucleus. As I, I, I know influenza does. I can't remember where dengue, dengue virus replicates. Right. But as you well know, there are a small proportion of patients who have influenza infections who die yeah. for the same basic reasons as the patients with uh, COVID-19. Basically, they end up in the intensive care unit. They uh, can no longer transport oxygen across the uh, alveolar uh, surface into the bloodstream. And so they develop multi-organ system failure because their outlying tissues are starved of oxygen and they die, right? So, so the thing about this, this hypothesis, right, is that the virus is basically causing all this damage all by itself. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that the immune system doesn't play a role. But you can appreciate that when the virus starts to replicate, it's doing so inside the cell and there's nothing stopping it, hmm. right? So if the virus has a jackpot replication event in a particular cell, there's nothing the immune system can do to prevent this. Uh, the, there's the so-called innate immunity, which is basically signals that, the, that cells send out um, to tell the immune system that they've been infected, and that sends macrophages and cytokines to the location of the infection. Yeah. The thing is that cold viruses and co coronaviruses, MERS, for example, they actually encode proteins in their viral genomes that downregulate, that repress this signaling system. Mm. So the immune system is unaware that there's an infection. Right, right. Okay. And so the virus can replicate unimpeded as these RNA binding proteins are synthesized in the ribosome instead of being transited to the transported to the nucleus and protecting host RNAs, they can get bound by the viral genomes. Hmm. So in, in depleting those these RNA binding proteins, it allows the RNA, the R loops to form. There are so many of them that they overwhelm the DNA damage repair systems. Mm -hmm. And the, the cell get, basically gives up and sends signals to commit suicide. That's apoptosis. The problem with that is you've got all this virus that's waiting to escape, and it all gets released all at once. Yeah, so the, the question would be, um, if, if this is happening in any sort of RNA-based virus uh, issue, um, so number one, you know, the, the mortality rate uh, for COVID is a lot higher, uh, number one. Number two, we see a very high variability among individuals, right? Yeah. Some, you know, some having very severe yes. uh, symptoms and some asymptomatic uh, almost. Yes. So, so, so how do you explain that in this case? Well, first of all, there's no evidence, for example, that dengue and flu virus encode proteins that prevent innate immunity. Yeah. Right? So it's very possible that the immune system, as it does, often takes over and um, gets rid of those cells. And so you recover. But, but, you know, it's still a very serious killer in the United States. Mm. Uh, every year. Right. Um, so the what was the other point? No, um, no. So, um, so that, that's one of the issues is that COVID, that coronaviruses in general, and this one in particular. The other issue is that 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 you have you rely on the fact that there are these jackpot events. Right. So you can imagine in some cells, maybe virus replication 
doesn't occur quite so quickly. Maybe in some individuals, their immune system is actually educated by, co by you know, regular co common cold viruses, and they do, and, and maybe, a, you know, the vaccines will actually get rid of the majority of virus that gets into our systems. But the thing about this mechanism we're proposing is you only need one viral particle to infect the cell and for that infection to cause a jackpot replication event. And the reason why remdesivir works so well is not just because it's preventing replication of the virus, right? So it's an analog, I believe it is of adenosine, mm -hmm. and, and it basically it prevents replication of the virus. But if you can imagine, if you don't replicate the virus, you can't produce these RNA binding sites that the RNA binding proteins need to bind to, to impede uh, normal host RNA processing. So that's how I believe um, remdesivir basically um, makes patients better, including the ones that are in the intensive care unit. Right. So, but if I understand this correctly, Peter, you know, uh, you said the immune system can really take care of it because all this stuff is happening inside the cell. And often the immune system is not even aware that infection has happened, right? And by the time, um, you know, the, the issue uh, has happened and it has replicated, it is sending a large number of um, replicated uh, RNA inside the body, uh, it's probably too late for the immune system to do anything. If, so if that is the case, uh, again, why do we see a big difference between, you know, the, the typical flu uh, and COVID? I don't have an answer to your question, right? Yeah. But I guess uh, I, I would like to um, to talk about something else that's in the paper that's sure. sort of re relevant. Yeah. And that is, you know, we all are aware that there are age-related differences in susceptibility to this virus right 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 so if you're older like me you don't go out because you know you're more susceptible right yeah um and if you're a child well the probability of dying and getting a severe infection is lower but there are still children who are in the intensive care unit um why would children show some protection um so the answer I believe, and I think there, there's actually some articles to support this, yeah. um, is that uh, the, the lung cells that are infected um, are these so-called AT2 cells. They're type 2 pneumocytes. Now, it's possible they also infect type 1 pneumocytes. Mm -hmm. So the difference between type 1 and type 2 pneumocytes is type 1 pneumocytes actually transport oxygen across the alveolus into the red blood cells, right? Yeah. Which we need. Type two cells are like helper cells. They're, they're a bit like astrocytes in the brain. So um, they're necessary to help us breathe. They make something called surfactant. And you may recall that um, premature babies get surfactant. Mm -hmm. So surfactant is basically this mixture of proteins and lipids that allows your lungs to expand and contract easily without you know, causing tissue damage. Yeah. Right. Um, it's kind of like bathing your lungs in a, in sort of an oil, oily substance that allows it to, to, you know, to, to, to move. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
so the, you need the most amount of surfactant when you are born, when you right. take your first breath, right? So babies who are premature, because surfactant is made very late in gestation, yeah. need supplementary surfactant. So there's synthetic surfactants, and they, it actually saves many lives, many neonates. Hmm. So if you look at the production and the, the lifetime of these type 2 cells that make surfactant, you're born with the maximum number of them. Yeah. And as we grow older, we lose them. Right. So if you think about um, the fact that this is the cell that gets infected, mm -hmm. um, if we have a, a jackpot COVID replication event, mm -hmm. uh, then that jackpot event, once it releases virus, it doesn't have to infect. As, there aren't as many cells that it needs to infect mm. in order to cause its damage. You're already substantially compromised because you have fewer of these infectable cells, these susceptible cells, right? As yeah. you because you're older, right, right. And and so I think um, we can't really say. You know, what's the probability that a particular virus is going to cause this? But here's the thing. If you look at virology textbooks, yeah. they will all show, especially, usually they'll use flu as an example, but sometimes they'll use other viruses. They'll show an electron micrograph of a uh, virus being released from the membrane of the cell, right? In a normal sort of process. The cell is, doesn't die. It doesn't undergo apoptosis. It just releases this viral particle, right? So that level of release of virus is something that I believe that the immune system can handle. Right. But when you literally blow up the cell and release a large amount of virus into the uh, alveolus, if there are not a lot of, of, of type two uh, pneumocytes, those cells have a higher probability of infecting the remaining pneumocytes and completely compromising function. So, you know, you hear these stories of people who arrive at the hospital and they're sick, but within a few hours, they no right. longer, you know, they're on ECMO, they're on extracorporeal membrane oxygen machines, right? It's not enough to put them on ventilators. Yeah, fact, so, so it Ventilators aren't gonna solve this problem because if your cells that transport oxygen are dead, no matter how, many, how much oxygen you force into their lungs, it's not going to solve the problem. Right. So, so, so then would it be correct in saying, Peter, that in the case of COVID, what you're saying is that the mechanism is slightly different. It is not, you know, uh, getting a cell infected and then replicating in there and slowly getting uh, back into other cells, but rather when the first cell gets infected, there is sort of an explosion that happens there. That in some people large. where these where these rap, jackpot replication events are incurring. And right. so I think in some people, for whatever reason, it's maybe stochastic. I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, I don't have the, all the answers. We're still only a few months into this. Yeah. But, um, you know, I've made some proposals to the Canadian government. Hopefully, at some point, they'll consider it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but basically, um, you know, the, the idea is that, that the individuals that are um, rapidly progressing uh, and ending up in intensive care units um, are releasing large amounts of virus into their bloodstreams. And that, that may be why they have these infections for many months. 
Right. And so what are the implications for vaccine then? I know that there are different methods so, to try. It's, right? it's an interesting question. So, yeah. you know, in theory, the vaccines, they have these neutralizing, they induce these neutralizing antibodies, right? So yeah. it, let's say you're, you're infected, but not by a large amount of virus. Well, if you have a, a strong vaccine response and you make a lot of neutralizing antibodies, it could be that the virus is is eaten up by macrophages or you know by helper by T cells and B cells and basically uh, cleaned out of your bloodstream or your uh, uh, respiratory tract before it can cause serious damage. So it may well be that um, some of these vaccines uh, are um, very effective in some people. Um, I think there's another point, though, and that is that because the virus has the ability to disguise itself, you know, it, there's never been an effective vaccine for the common cold. Right. People have been working on it for many years. The second most common cause of the common cold is a coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So why is that? It's because of this ability that coronaviruses have um, to repress innate immunity. So it may very well be that we need to get booster shots every three months. You know, with, with tetanus, we get a booster shot every 10 years. I mean, so there, it may well be that we may need to get booster shots of the vaccine on a regular basis. Yeah. I mean, I, there was, you know, some there was a hypothesis that said, you know, people who are able to uh, able to manage the infection are those who have had several coronavirus like attacks uh, in the past. And um, if your hypothesis is right, that that could be true as well. Right. Well, that's another point about children. Right. Is they're always they always have a cold. Right. Yeah. So, so they're already making antibodies. That could be another reason they're protected. Yeah, but if that's the case, then there is a question around the resident time because uh, an older individual presumably have had many, many more infections than, than, a, than a young individual, right? And hence, you know, if the resident time of the antibody is, is long enough, uh, presumably the, the older individual is more protected, but that is not what we're seeing. Well, again, there is this fundamental problem of the MERS virus makes a protein. I don't even remember what it was called. It's in our manuscript, but it's, it's well-documented that it represses the interferon response. And the interferon response um, is this very primordial, this innate immunity, primordial response to viruses in particular, because viruses make something that are ordinarily not made in our cells. They make double-stranded RNA. Yeah. So when the virus replicates, the next thing it does is it has to make its own proteins. And coronavirus basically has this fairly um, complex mechanism for shifting the strand from the a leader strand from one, one strand to the other to begin to initiate replication of the negative strand of the virus, which encodes the proteins that are, that it co-ops our ribosomes to actually make. Mm -hmm. So the virus as part of its life cycle makes uh, uh, structures that have two RNA strands in them. And that's what the interferon response recognizes. Mm -hmm. 
Influenza virus does this as well. Dengue virus does this as well. So, so RNA viruses activate this um, very primordial response. And the problem is that COVID uh, coronavirus makes a protein that shuts down the interferon expression. Hmm. So, so if it does that, right, then, yeah. then it's the chances that the virus can, you know, basically sulk and, and evade the immune system is much higher. Right. Yeah. So you, so you mentioned remdesivir and, you know, there is some evidence that it, it appears to be effective. Uh, so what, uh, what, what can be learned from that? Um, it, it, so, so I'm, you know, going back to this idea that the different types of vaccines being tried, there are, I think, six into phase three now. And I think there are at least three different types of vaccines. Do you have a view as to uh, which vaccine is more likely to succeed? It's a hard question. So there's a lot of noise and um, a lot of excitement about the Moderna vaccine, which yeah. is mRNA based. So you don't have this classical, let's inject the antigen into a chicken egg and make the antibodies. And it, it, it's, it's a much simpler approach. You'd literally make the RNA, you let the cells in the body make the RNA. Mm. Um, I think it's interesting, it's attractive, but there is this concern, right? Because you put a lot of, of synthetic RNA, which has been chemically modified to avoid nucleases inside cells and inside the body to break down that RNA. But, you know, that, the, that RNA that it's, it's making is basically encoding this um, uh, uh, spike protein that the coronavirus makes, right? It encodes part of the spike protein. Well, it's going to contain some of these RNA binding protein binding sites. Yeah. So um, I don't know whether or not uh, that can cause, might cause a cross-reactivity or it, it might affect, um, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. if a person doesn't mount a substantial immune response after receiving the Moderna vaccine, the question I have is what's the fate of that RNA and could it be interfering with um, host uh, nuclear um, mRNA, RNA metabolism. I don't know. Right. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, the details of these different vaccines are, have not been really released, right? Exactly what sequences they're using as immunogens and so on. Right. So it, it, it's, um, you know, not obvious at this point which vaccines will work. Uh, I suspect that um, there could be ethnic-specific differences. Mm -hmm. there, there, there could be, um, I mean, one thing that's clear is that there's going to be a marketplace for these vaccines. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and and the physicians who are prescribing them and using them um, there will be a lot of optimization that goes on to try to figure out what algorithm should be used, which vaccine should we use, and which individuals first, second, third, and so on. And, and there, I think perhaps the genome sequences of these individuals may turn out to be helpful in helping figure out who's likely to respond to which vaccine. I don't know. Yeah, so, you know, just like any other viral infection, the more the viral load is, the higher the chance of getting severe infection and, yeah. and, and problems. 
But if your hypothesis is right, Peter, if, if I understand this correctly, uh, that is true. But, but there is another dimension here, which is some people, even with very little viral load, could get into a situation that, you know, whatever you described in terms of sort of an explosion happening uh, and, and very quickly going down, uh, uh, you know, the initial infection load was very little, but that doesn't really correlate with what actually happens to that individual. But we don't really know why, right, who and, and, and what is causing that. So all I can say is that, that this concept of a jackpot replication event, it's definitely going to require a lot of study, right? But yeah. the people who have a jackpot replication event are certainly, so, you know, coming back to information theory, we have made mathematical information theory-based models of two different proteins that bind to um, host RNAs, and they also bind in multiple locations to the flu, the dengue, and of course the COVID, the SARS uh, coronavirus 2 RNA sequences. Mm. And, and it's really simply the law of mass action. If you replicate large amounts of viral RNA, then you will soak up, you will deplete, you'll sponge up lots of these proteins. And what do these proteins do? So about 10 years ago, uh, there was a, uh, some really seminal papers out of Rockefeller University where they down-regulated these two proteins that we study here. And they showed that, first of all, the SRSF1, which is actually a splicing factor, but it was originally, in my view, and probably in view of the Rockefeller University scientists, Dr. Manley and his colleagues, hmm. um, its original purpose was to protect the RNAs from forming these R loops. Yeah. And we essentially made a mathematical model based on 50,000 of these binding sites. And then we scanned the host transcriptome. We also scanned the viral transcriptomes and we figured out how many binding sites needed to be bound in the viral sites, how much replication needs to occur in order to basically soak up half of all of the SRSF1, right? Mm -hmm. So at some point you hit this threshold whereby the RNAs and the nucleus aren't protected enough anymore and the explosion occurs, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The virus is replicated enough times that it soaks up this essential protein. So Dr. Manley's experiments 10 years ago showed that when he synthetically down-regulated, he repressed this particular protein, mm -hmm. cells basically started to undergo apoptosis. They started to, to lyse, they, they died yes. by this process that is this, this suicidal process because they couldn't repair the damage that occurred right. when the replication forks hit the R loops. Uh, there were just too much damage. Yeah. Then a couple of years later, they found another protein that mm -hmm. when added back to the cells, it's RNPS1, it actually um, complemented, and it's, that's a genetic term, it recovered, it rescued the deficiency in SRSF1, right? Mm -hmm. So these, so what we found when we actually built our models of these binding sites is they're very similar to one another. They actually overlap one another in like 70% of the cases in the human genome. Right. That's, so, um, so that, I think you the mentioned point is that that's what's actually, I think, going on, right? We've quantified what the RNA binding proteins are, where they bind in the virus, where they bind in the host, 
and how much virus you need in order to prevent the binding in the host. Yeah, so so very quickly, I think you mentioned this, Peter, but I just want to touch on this again. So the remdesivir uh, effectiveness, does it give us any clues at all? Yes, right. Remdesivir, yeah. essentially, so when you polymerize, when you make a copy of the virus, yeah, right, you, you're essentially copying the adenosine, guanine, uh, uracil, uh, let's see, yeah, and adenine, right? You make copies, right? You're, you're duplicating the viral genome, right? Mm-hmm. So the remdesivir is a, um, a modification of adenosine. Okay. And, and when it gets incorporated into the viral genome, it prevents any further nucleotides from being copied. Mm-hmm. So it's what we call a chain terminating nucleotide. Right. So chain termination, we've known about this for a long time. Right. It's the basis of how we do DNA sequencing. Yeah. So if the virus can't make copies of itself. Right. It Mm. can't uh, kill cells. Yeah. Yeah. Because in order to kill cells, it has to have copies of itself to bind to these RNA binding proteins. Yeah, I was. I mean, that is true uh, with any sort of infection. I was wondering if if it gives us any clues. Uh, I think it is effective in severe infections, if I if I understand it correctly. So I was just wondering if there is anything that tells us, you know, what is causing that that explosion that you mentioned to be dampened uh, by the drug. But well, I think, yeah. the, the drug basically prevents the virus from continuing to replicate. Yeah. Yeah. So if the virus can't continue to replicate, then, you know, maybe your type two pneumocytes don't die. Right. Right. So you have a, a you have certain number of those virus, those pneumocytes in your lungs. They can start to replicate themselves without virus impinging on their their own replication and, and potentially you can recover. Hmm. Right. Okay. So you can appreciate that because we understand the mechanism of action to some degree of remdesivir, there are a lot of drug companies working on other nucleoside analogs that do the same thing as remdesivir that cause chain termination, right? Right. The other thing that's interesting as a potential therapy is, uh, and I talk about it briefly in the manuscript, and I even cite uh, an article of another drug Yes. So, so in order for transcription of the virus proteins to occur, right, the, 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 the RNAs that encode the virus proteins, like making the, the various proteins that make up the virus and then encapsulate the RNA, um, the, there is this template switch that occurs from the positive strand after it's replicated to the other strand to the negative strand. And then that in, initial uh, event of transcribing the viral genome to make proteins involves a, another host protein called HNRNPA1, which has a completely different function in mm-hmm. the nucleus during splicing. But it seems to be important for initiating expression of viral proteins from the viral genome. Mm-hmm. So there are, in fact, uh, inhibitors of HNRNPA1. Right, that could right. be tried as therapies to mm. prevent the viral proteins from being synthesized. Yeah, 
Um, so, so, so in conclusion, if you were to handicap, you know, the likelihood of us uh, getting an effective vaccine in the next six months to one year, what would you say to this? I'd say it's high. It's high? Okay. I, I think that, as I said, the challenge is going to be defining effective, right? Yeah. You know, medicine always starts out in a fairly blunt kind of approach, right? So we have a control group that doesn't get the vaccine. We have a group that does get the vaccine, right? And the thing is that group that gets the vaccine, they're not stratified in any way, right? You have to make a decision. Are we going to give this to older individuals? Are we going to give it to younger individuals? You could make the argument that you should give it to younger individuals because as we uh, get older, our immune systems start to senesce Mm. and they they don't work so well to actually battle uh, viral infections and other sorts of um, infectious agents, bacterial infections. Yeah. So the chances of the vaccine actually being effective will be better in individuals who have strong immune systems to begin with. But of course, that's not the, the population that, that we need, need to protect, right? right. So how you build, how you decide who you're going to test the vaccine on, how you're going to stratify, what are the the eligibility conditions? Mm -hmm. You should look Mm -hmm. really close at that when they they talk about the approval of a vaccine. Who were they tested on? Right. Right. So if you're a person who's 65 years old and you're not that well, you'd really want to know that the vaccine's effective in other 65-year-olds that might have a pre, you know, like acute respiratory distress, adult respiratory distress syndrome or some other precondition that might make you at higher risk to die of this virus. So I think think that's a key question people should ask when vaccines become available, because there'll be a bunch of them, right? But how the patient population was selected is going to be important. Yeah, I mean, the Moderna uh, phase one trial, <laughs> there was a lot of excitement coming out of that. And, uh, and obviously, that is not, a, not the target population um, that is, uh, you know, just looking for safety there. So I think that's a, that's a good point. Uh, the question would be, um, when you prove this is effective, whatever it is, who is the target population it was tried on? And how does it sort of generalize to the population? That, that is one question. The second question is, what is needed at the societal level from a herd immunity perspective? Perhaps there are different strategies one could play um, if we can get to herd immunity without exposing the, the high-risk patients. Uh, maybe that's another way to, to tackle the problem. I don't know. But yeah, there are a lot of well, questions. I just want you to consider something else. I, yeah. I don't know any details about this, but I've read, I read somewhere that Gilead is testing remdesivir as a nasal spray. Yes, I saw that, yeah. Right? Well, you know, delivery, right now it's delivered in the intensive care unit with an IV drip, mm-hmm. right? But if you could go to the drugstore down the street and buy a nasal spray, mm-hmm. when you felt the cold coming on, you don't know what the cold is, but what if you could potentially prevent the viral infection from expanding in your body early, right? Yeah, that'd be a big deal. So I I, I actually, you know, when we first started thinking about this hypothesis, you know, and I started reading about coronaviruses, and I'm not a virologist, but as we've, we've kind of talked about today, 
you know, what you want is to take what SARS-CoV-2, what COVID-19 is, and turn it back into the common cold. Yes. Right? So yeah. if, if, if there was a way that we could use a medication that would essentially stop the virus cold <laughs> early mm -hmm. so that we never develop these severe system symptoms that would potentially kill us, then, right. then it really is no different from, you know, a common cold. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to think about it, uh, Peter. Um, excellent, yeah, this, this, has been, this has been great, Peter. Thanks so much for spending time with me. And uh, good luck with all the research that you're doing in this area. Well, thank you. Well, 